Hello everyone, this is Rob Behrens here on Radio Ombudsman, welcoming you to our first edition out of lockdown. And today I have a very special guest with us, Angela McDonald from HMRC. Angela, you're extremely welcome. Thank you for joining us today from Sheffield. My pleasure, Rob. Lovely to talk to you again. So Angela, is, to those who know her, is a very senior and important person in transformation in uh, the civil service. She became Deputy Chief Executive and Second Permanent Secretary of HMRC in 2020. She's an operations professional with 30 years experience of service delivery, transformation and change in both the public and private sector. Exactly the kind of person we need in these in these challenging times. So Angela, can I begin by asking you a bit about your background and where you where you grew up? So I'm in Sheffield today, which is kind of a part of my background. So I'm a Yorkshire person and I've, I was born here, I lived here and I've never left here, which might be an interesting thing for people to think, actually, blimey, there's a permanent secretary that's based in Yorkshire, but I am that rare person. I am that person. Um, I have uh, probably not got the traditional career project trajectory that you might think that gets you here. So I really fluffed my A-levels. I never went to university. I had a, I was a, you know, I was too busy doing the things you're not supposed to be doing when you're 17. And I ended up working in a local insurance company at the kind of at the most junior end, working on the front line, um, servicing customers. And I worked my way up from there all the way through. Um, I joined the civil service in 2009 and I've been in DWP and HMRC since 2017 but my jobs have always been about there to support the customer whether that be service delivery jobs or uh, transforming the experience of those customers or marketing I did sales for a while which was a very interesting experience for a couple of years so a variety of things but always somewhere revolving around doing something to serve the customer in one way or the other. Right. Well, that's great because it's so different from the stereotype of what a senior public servant does. When, when you were 17, what sort of values did you have in terms of your core principles? I was always brought up that there was a whole focus about doing the right thing and being prepared to be honest about that and that there would be consequences some of the time to saying what you thought but that actually, you know, everything was possible and you could get it if you wanted it. My parents, you know, I've been through challenging times like everybody has. My maiden name is Burn, and my dad will always say, no matter what's happening, remember you're a Burn. In a kind of a, you know, it isn't about whether or not you get knocked down because things happen all the time. It's about your ability to put, pick yourself back up and learn from it and keep going. I've always been quite a noisy person. I'm very extroverted and I've always had lots of opinions, which Rob will come as no surprise to you. But I think the thing that I've learned with age is actually how you make space for other people's opinions, not just your own, and how the value of other people. But that ability to be honest and take the risk and feel that you're doing the right thing 
and pick yourself back up has always been sort of a thing that has underpinned many of the choices I've made. And sometimes that's been fantastically successful and sometimes it's been a bit of an issue. But, uh, you know, I've always felt I had to be able to look at myself in the mirror before I could look at anybody else. So you were values driven rather than transactional. It sounds as if you didn't know what it was you were aiming for at the very beginning of your career. Gosh, no. I would love to tell you that I had this fantastic career plan. But if you'd have said to me at 17 that the life I'm living now. So, for instance, on Friday, I was in an away day with all of the permanent secretaries of the civil service with, you know, everybody from the security services to the uh, home office to the treasury. And that I'd be sat in a room as an equal at that table. I would have thought that was the maddest thing you could ever tell me. You know, it just seemed like a, a whole universe away. But I I think that there is a real challenge that people think that you sh- that you need to have a big grand plan and that if you make a misstep on that plan, you know, let's say you don't get the right A-levels or let's say you don't go to the right university or let's say you don't get the right first job, that somehow that means the whole of your life is all gonna, not going to unfold. I'm a big believer in driving forward and taking the opportunities that life presents it to you and being open to those opportunities. And I think if I hadn't done that then I I probably there's no way I would have ended up here but yeah so I, I think a plan is important sort of directionally but a plan is not a is not a route march through because there are so many things when you're 17 that you don't even know exists in fact I'm not even sure I knew at 17 that there were you know what the civil service was and what the per, what a permanent secretary even was to even aspire to it I'm sure yeah. I wouldn't have known what an ombudsman was when I was 17. Yeah I think there are people who are 70 who don't know what an ombudsman is and that's <laughs> That's one of the challenges that we have. But but just my final question about this is, do you feel that you were stereotyped or prejudiced being a, a young woman aspiring for a, a, a career? Definitely, I spent a while with the tag of gobby northern woman. And well, you know, that. And I when I remember when I when I very first joined the civil service and bearing in mind this is 13 years ago, my boss at the time said, you're scaring all the men, which I thought was an immensely interesting piece of feedback. And I doubt very much if I was a man that that I would have I probably would have been assertive and I would have I would have been told I had great opinions. But you're scaring all the men was an interesting piece of feedback. And what I've learned and reflected on about some of that is actually the reality is that it isn't my gender which is influencing my personality style. I am an extreme extrovert and I've come to learn about myself that I'm an extreme extrovert. And that that means I think I think out loud, sitting silent you know, if after a while, if I haven't spoken, it almost feels like physical pain. I need I need words to come out of my mouth, <laughs> no matter what the words are. And those who know me well will will know that. And you know, I spent quite a lot of time apologising for myself. And then I had a different boss, a fantastic boss, who said, actually, the 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 things about you that are naturally you are the reason why you're successful. So why are you spending so much time trying to convert yourself into somebody else? Find the organization or the boss or the problem that needs a person with your skills and your personality style and go and fit there. 
because don't try to to go for a job and then squash yourself into some other person's version of what good looks like there are so many different jobs and plenty of plenty there are enough jobs and diversity to suit every personality style every need every desire find the fit that's the fit for you and that that piece of advice has meant that since then i have very consciously sought out bosses who wanted my style, who wanted my skills, who valued me as I am, who weren't going to take me in and go, that's very lovely. But now you're in here. Could you just turn into somebody else? Because I, I can't do it. And it's also a nightmare for them trying to manage me when it was when I wasn't really what they wanted. So loving myself and owning my own style has been probably one of the big learns. Did you do this all on your own or did you need mentors to help oh, you? Oh, no, I got support. I got support different people over different time periods and again sometimes you have these pivotal moments don't you so when I first went to HMRC and I met I met a colleague for the very first time and you do your introduction and I said that I'm Angela and actually I'm a loud person I typically you know people can find this about me and she said well I've been working with you now for about six weeks and I haven't seen that But given that you know yourself better than anybody else, this self-talk, this narrative you're projecting about who you are, if that's the way, if if that's what you're saying to everybody, then you're creating your own reputation before you've even sat down and done anything. Mm. And so think about the story you tell of yourself as well as the story other people tell of you. And so that was was mind-blowing. As one as one piece of intervention, I then spent the next six months with my coach unpicking that, working out what I thought about it, thinking through how I what had led me to being that. And it's probably, you know, I spent from the very youngest age being told to shut up and sit down. So that's it probably comes from there. But there have been a few interventions from individuals which have really set my really put a discontinuity into my thought process. And then with a coach or with a particular mentor, I've kind of really delved into that and unpicked it and worked out what I would do with it as a consequence of that insight. Thank you. That's very interesting. And of course, it's complicated and it's different for everybody. Of course. And that's why you need help. Seeking help is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. All of the best people I know have had support because none of us you know we'll 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 all have some natural talent but the reality is in order to be the best version of ourselves it's a combination of our experiences the feedback that we get our curiosity how open we are to learning well and i recognize that again depending upon who you are you may do that through academic learning or you know exploring those things on your own but for an awful lot of people actually that that learning and that openness to the differences of how the world works you get that by interacting with other people by the feedback that you get by listening and as I say being curious so I think the 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 people who I see who really succeed they're create they're created by a community they're they're an accumulation of the inputs that they have had because you know we're never finished we're we're always we're always growing yeah I think Ralph McTell the folk singer had a lovely line where he said, I've heard of people like me, but I never made the connection. <laughs> it just shows the importance of the dialogue that you're, yes. you're talking about. So a couple of years ago, we laid 
as the Ombudsman, we laid a report before Parliament called Making Complaints Count, in which we had a an in-depth look at how government departments handle complaints across the board, not only in the health service, but in, in non-health departments. And out of that came our deep concern that there was something fundamentally wrong with the way in which routinely government departments were looking at complaints. And we floated the idea of complaint standards for government organisations. And you have been a magnificent supporter of this development, for which we are very grateful, to create a single set of standards across the board. Why do you think this work is so important in terms of your commitment to it? So we in the civil service, and I, and I suppose in the, in the broader public sector too, we're here to serve the public. And we do that through millions and millions of interactions. And being realistic, even if we are fantastic 99% of the time, that 1% when you're serving 70 million people is an awful lot of people. Somewhere, the one thing I can guarantee you is right now, as we are recording this conversation, Rob, somewhere across the civil service or the broader public sector, somebody is something isn't going right somewhere. That, you know, a service isn't being delivered, a mistake is being made, not because we're negligent, but because the civil service is peopled by human beings. Um, and the reality is that mistakes happen, problems occur. Now, when those things happen, you know, you do everything you possibly can to prevent it happening. But the reality is how you intervene, how you make a difference, how you rescue and put the situation right, and then how you learn from it, that's, that's what then becomes incredibly important. And your average citizen doesn't see the divisions and departments and specific bits, the way we name ourselves, the way we put ourselves together organisationally. They just see government services or they see local council services or they see NHS services. They just see services. And therefore, when we put things right, there should be some commonality, some good way, some sharing of best practice about how we put it right when it goes wrong. And in my role as the cross-government complaints champion, having had the opportunity to spend time with departments large and small, what you realise is that there is massive diversity of experience and capability in those different departments. So if you're somebody like HMRC, we're enormous, 65,000 people. And therefore, you know, there's a good several hundred people in the complaints department. They can learn from each other. They can grow from each other. They've got good IT. They can write good letters. It all kinds of comes together. But actually, we've got some places where the place is teeny tiny and the complaints person is a part time person who kind of does it for two days a week. That person has very little infrastructure, has very little support. How is how do we make sure that the customer gets the same experience regardless of the two? So I I think that what our responsibility is, is, of course, to do everything we can to avoid problems in the first place. But the mark of who we are is what we do when it goes wrong. And there yeah. has to be a good quality, consistent way of doing that. That means that you're not at the whim of whether or not somebody's invested in resources in their half a person or somebody else has invested resources in their two or three hundred people. OK, that, that's that's very interesting. I mean, it leads me to ask you this. 
why do you think from your experience that the issues you raise are so marginalized in government so as not to carry the impetus that clearly they do in a minority of departments? Yeah, I think that the concept of being a customer focused organization, I still think in bits of the civil service is still in its relatively early days. Now, you might think that's a really weird thing to say, given that we're all, you know, 400,000 of us are all here to deliver services for the citizen. But actually, if you think about our big responsibility is to deliver the agenda of the government of the day. That's, you know, that and that's incredibly important for ministers. It's incredibly important for senior civil servants. That's, you know, that and and we're here to make sure that the policies are implemented across the broad agenda. But and also, too, we are a customer focused organisation. And if we were the private sector, you value your customers more than anything, because if you don't give them a good experience, they leave you. They take their business to some other place. You then lose your customers and you go bust. And therefore, your senior leadership are absolutely obsessed with the customer because it is the only reason you exist if you are, I don't know, a a fashion brand or a financial services organisation. It's not the same in the civil service. You can't go anywhere else. Whether we deliver you a fantastic service or a terrible service, you're stuck with us. So if you're, you know, if I think HMRC, whether or not you think your taxes are managed well or managed badly, you can't go and get your tax from somewhere else. You're stuck with me. So you you are very limited you know you don't have that customer focused ability to go to to take the ultimate sanction which is to withdraw your withdraw your custom which is why so many private sector organizations are so customer obsessed and i and i i whilst i've definitely seen change in the 12 years i've been a civil servant I definitely think that that kind of, well, the customers aren't going anywhere, so they've kind of got to put up with what they're putting up with. It's definitely was, was, it isn't now, but was a narrative that I encountered when I first arrived, which having spent 20 years in financial services just felt like the weirdest and strangest. I couldn't, I couldn't grasp why, why you could think such a thing. So, I think we are moving, but I think that some of the levers which drive a customer-obsessed environment in the private sector just aren't there in the public sector. So what you've got to do is you've got to create a different reason why you should be customer-obsessed and some other motivation for why it's so important that things are done right first time, things are communicated well and easily to the customer, that you get a uh, that things are done in a timely fashion. You've got to help your organisation be motivated because it's the right thing to do. Um, mm. And what other financial benefits do you get? So, for instance, again, if I'm in tax world, we want people to be compliant. We want people to pay the tax that's due. We stand a bigger chance of them paying the tax that's due if they understand what we need from them. We take their data in well. When they've got a problem, we help them to solve it all of which hopefully will result in them paying their tax on time and correctly. And if they and if that doesn't happen, then I've got to spend a shed load of money sorting out a compliance intervention to try to sort it out, or they don't pay on time, so I've got to spend money on debt. So a really well-educated, really well-serviced customer is better compliant, which means I don't have to spend money making them compliant. So there is my case for why great service and great comms equals better tax. So do you see what I mean? You've got to try to create some reason because it isn't the traditional, if you don't, they'll leave you. Yeah. And included in that, would you agree that the more people service users trust 
a department, the more effective is going to be the relationship between the department and those who use the service and therefore more more efficient. Absolutely. So again, using myself as an example, people are quite intimidated in the main about tax. They worry about that brown envelope dropping on the floor. They worry about getting things wrong. And so what that can often do is lead them to ring me up and go, is this correct? Have I done it right? Is there a problem? Which is costing me money because they keep they're ringing me for reassurance or they're ringing, you know, did you get that thing I sent you? Have you changed my account? Have you done the right thing? Or is this a scam? Thinking about, you know, HMRC, I don't know about you, Rob, but did you receive the, I also, it made me laugh when I received the phone call that said that HMRC had a warrant out for my arrest and if I didn't press three and hand over £5,000, I was going to be in big trouble. I don't know if you received those scam calls, but that kind of trust and relationship and connection either puts the customer at risk, they can lose their data, they can be scammed, or it, or it leads to the customer being worried and anxious, which leads yeah. to them ringing me, chasing me, double checking me, which again means I'm spending time and money on those customers as opposed to other customers who might need my different kind of a help. So there's a big relationship here, which is actually quite complicated and also depends on the topic. So that's my relationship challenge on tax. It's probably something quite different if you're talking to a doctor and having a operation or you're in a school and you're talking to education you know there's all these different kinds of relationships on the go in which the I'm relying on you to deliver this for me because I've got no other choice there is only you which is the reality of our situation and there's a consequence for me if it goes wrong and that you know there's that you've got to build something that we're all confident in. Thank you I mean when we've consulted on on the standards uh, across the public service, we found that people in departments are saying to us that they need skills, professional skills, in order to invest properly in complaint standards. They need the opportunity to share uh, experiences with other departments because, as you say, there's a diversity of practice. And thirdly, they need recognition from their leaders in agencies or departments or trusts that they are part of the core business of the organisation, not some subsidiary or, or underclass associated with it. And I've been struck by the times that I've met complaints handlers in private behind closed doors and they've said to me, you know, help. If you don't give us the help, if you don't create the immediacy to explain to our bosses that we are part of a solution to the things they're interested in, no one else is going to do it. Which of those things do you think is the most difficult to achieve in rolling out the complaint standards? Gosh, well, they, they all bring different complexities, I think. I think that the growing of skills and the sharing of best practice between departments is actually something that a role like mine makes a difference to. One of the big advantages that I have, you know, when you, you know, with great power comes great responsibility is I get a chance to waft my job title at things. And that means I get convening power. And so I have the ability to bring together the different departments, to bring together the people who can make a difference, to make sure that we're we're sharing skills. And we do quite a lot to try to create, you know, through the cross-government complaints forum, a place by which we can connect 
different practitioners, large scale or small scale, so they can learn from each other. It isn't about let's put a training course in. You can't, yeah. you know, you, lots of these things grow from experience and you don't, and there's nothing as fantastic as learning from a colleague who does the same job as you somewhere else. So I think there's logistics and challenges and you've got to be doing that perpetually to kind of drive that forward. But I, so whilst that's got logistical challenges, I don't think that's the hardest part. I actually think that the the more complicated part of it is how do you become a learning organization? So I don't think that leaders willfully disregard the experience of their customers. I think that all the leaders I meet care passionately about that. And I don't think that people ignore complaint numbers either. But the challenge can be that the complaint numbers are typically relatively small. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I need to service a million customers. I'm achieving a service standard of 95% and 5% of those customers uh, had a problem. Actually, you'd be look, I'd be looking at that and going, yippee, 95% success rate, yee-haw, that's fantastic in all of this great grand scheme of things. So, and it can be easy to focus on how do I do the best I can for the mass? I think the real challenge is how do you glean insights, particularly if the complaint numbers are really small? Because one incident isn't a, isn't a theme or a trend. Yeah. So how do you turn that complaint content into a into something that means that you create a case for change for the leaders so that they can see, actually, gosh, over this last 12 months, we regularly seem to be tripping over this, that and the next thing. And it's not a large volume, but blimey, it's a drip, drip, drip month after month. I think our responsibility as complaint specialists is how do you make how do you make the consequences useful so that then what what the leadership can see is why actually there's real added value, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because actually it will make a material difference to the outcomes. And oddly, I do think that the smaller you are, I think the harder that can be. Yeah. Because if you're only doing a thousand, a thousand, I don't know, some things a year and two of them go wrong, how do you create a theme or a trend? How do you learn? How does that become a learn rather than it was a one off human related mistake? So the smaller you are, I think the harder that is to pull off. From from what you're saying, it's about the rational case for incorporating effective complaint standards in your wider processes. In Scotland, when they do this, the ombudsman has a regulatory power to be able to say to departments, actually, your complaints process is not good enough because you don't meet the standards we've set out. We are insisting now that you change them. Now, we don't have that option in England. The government's not interested in that at the moment. Do you think that's a weakness or a strength? <laughs> You're leading me into a conversation there, so I am not. So I'm not going to make a comment on on the decisions the ministers are making. I think that I can see I can see the the opportunity that can come from a regulatory intervention. But to be honest, if the only way a department or an organisation makes a change is because they've been regulatorily pushed into it, we've kind of we get the outcome. But that I'm not sure that means we've necessarily won the intellectual war here. The real win, I think, is it takes people like me and in people in my position, because unless we firmly believe, picking up on what I said earlier, in the power of the customer being important, even yeah. if the customer can't leave us, and that there is depth of learning to be had in 
not just fixing the cases for individual customers, but also for the themes and insight about what that tells you about what, what you know, not just the customer experience, but the costs, the hidden costs, the downsides and consequences, the compensation that you pay, all of this is costing taxpayers money when those things go wrong. I think it's up to us to be to pull that towards us as the leadership community. You know, I you know, I definitely know there are some things across an array of topics that you do because you're regulatorily obliged to do it. But I don't think you can create a customer environment because you're regulatorily obliged to do it. I think yeah. you've got to do it because that's the culture that pervades your organization and you ruthlessly pursue that from top to bottom. And I uh, over my 12 years, I'm increasingly seeing that pull of what it's like to be a citizen here, what it's like to be a customer, what are the gaps, what are the customer experiences, what are we learning? I'm seeing that blossoming and blossoming. Um, I, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't patches where you know th- there's more to be done, and maybe that might be the place you would convince ministers that uh, you know 80% will do it because it's the right thing to do, and I need something to help me with the 20% who won't if Pareto applies. And maybe that's where we get to. But I wouldn't I would hate to think that the only reason we really grabbed hold of this agenda was because we were worried that you were going to come and knock on the door. Somehow we've not we've not we've not grasped it if that's where we have to end up. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good answer. And I, I, of course, I wasn't trying to get you to embarrass your ministers, because when I was at the OIA, the Higher Education Ombudsman, we delivered this initiative between universities and the ombudsman without any regulation whatsoever. So I do take your point that it's it's making the case from the customer perspective or the user perspective, which, which is critical here. But I do wonder though, Rob, whether or not there is anything interesting to learn from the Scottish experience about whether or not it has accelerated things or how frequently it's had to be used so i you know we might not be doing it ourselves but i'm always curious as to see how other models work so maybe it's a maybe it's a a set of questions i should ask well i think you know what's interesting about scotland is that they have a public service ombudsman so complaint standards don't just apply to central government or to one functional area, they apply across the board. So the potential for learning is much wider, Yeah. but, but they can do that because they're smaller in, in terms of size. So they don't need a large central body to monitor this in a way that perhaps we do. So that, that brings me on to towards the end, but, but this is important too. How do you think this initiative, which seems to be very popular, I mean, we, we're not we're not uh, pushing against closed doors here. I, I had wondered whether it would be interesting and and acceptable to people, and I've found that actually this is an idea which which has been coming for a long time, and people are very pleased with it, which is good. And thanks to your initiatives and the support of being the complaints champion, that's that's accelerated. But what's the best way of monitoring it so that we can continue to adjust it and get it right? I think what we what we really need to reflect for ourselves, given that we've now got some traction, and this is something I think we we both you and I play a role in, is how will we measure our success? So if if this lands as we want it to land, how will we know? And and I don't think there's one answer to that question. And again, yeah. it depends because some departments, some groups already 
live to these standards, have successfully been doing it for a while. This is no major change for them. They will carry on and it's easy to adopt. For others, there's a massive, this is going to be a massive hill to climb, a, a big change. And so, you know, I don't think it's about volumes of complaints because life moves on and there's always something that, as I said, there's always something going wrong somewhere. But I, I think we need to we need to decide how will we measure and understand whether or not the we are in fact getting the improvements and is that qualitative research is it quantitative research is it the whole of government or is it actually the particular areas groups departments where it did feel like there was a bigger hill to climb and i think that's from the perspective of the customer and then i think that there is also insight and what we need to be reflecting back on from the colleagues concerned because ideally, I don't want anybody feeling that, that that they've got to ask you to, you know, come and intervene on their behalf um, by a department agreeing to these standards. I'm hoping to miss out that part. I'm hoping that actually somebody like me can say to departments, are you delivering against the standards? And the executive will need to be able to play back whether they are or they aren't in the different places without the individual junior colleague feeling like it's all on them. So I think we shouldn't take for granted that just because we put a standard out, the, the gulf will be bridged. There will definitely be some follow through. But I think what we need to do is to work out how we focus that. Yeah. The, because the risk is, let's take apartment like mine, let's take DWP. Given the volume of customers that we deal with, we are a majority of complaints, a majority of the cases that you would see from a non-NHS perspective. So, but we're already, we're already in there. So if you're not, if we're not careful, we'll go, yippee, this is what it looks like for the majority of customers. Yeah, but it wasn't the 80% who were already there that were the challenge. It was the 20% where you might see a case once a year, or you might see a particular trend very rarely. Those are the ones where we need to do some checking in and, and say, how can we help how are you managing to implement? Is there anything that we need to do? And that I think will be partly about the insight that you will gain from the conversations and the interactions you have in the complaints. And it will also be partly the insights I will gain through my complaints forum, through the conversations I'm regularly having with the other second permanent secretaries across the departments who are in the main have jobs like mine, which are the operational running of the yeah. departments. And I think between us, we will uh, gain it through. But ideally, because we've set a clear view that says we'll know this is working when we see A happening rather than B happening. I think we've got to articulate that out so that everybody can see it. Thank you for illustrating that this has to be a collaborative exercise. This is not something that the Ombudsman can wave a magic wand and say you need, you need to be doing this chaps and it'll all be all right. You know it's got to be interactive, it's got to be based on real life experience and sharing good practice and less good practice in a, in a way which is helpful. And people have got to see that it's not over bureaucratized and, you know, it's it's something there for, for a continuing good reason. So I'm very grateful to you for, for what you're doing. You're a, a key pillar in this project. I want to end this conversation. I don't want to end it, but I have to by asking you to reflect on 30 years of experience of service delivery, transformation and change in public and private sectors. There are lots of young people, young graduates listening to this programme who are thinking of 
embarking on a career in public service, what advice would you give to them? Well, I would say it is an incredibly exciting and diverse environment. There isn't a profession or a topic that you cannot flourish in in the civil service, whether you want to do comms, whether you want to do digital, whether you want to be an accountant or an HR professional, whether you're interested in the environment or the future of renewable energies, all of those things are available to you in the civil service. So I think see the civil service as a massive opportunity, you know, whilst you may that you know that that might be a pursuing a career in Whitehall, but actually the majority of the civil servants are not in Whitehall. They're across the uh, they're across the UK. You can get to the top of the civil service like me and live in live and base yourself in Yorkshire. There is uh, more to the civil service than the world of SW1. Not that it is not a fantastic place down there, also. So I think see the opportunity and the breadth of opportunity. But I'd also say, and I probably reflect, Rob, on the conversation I had with my son. So my son's 26 and he went, I'm here in Sheffield today. He was at Sheffield University for four years. And when he was coming out of university, he stressed enormously about what that first job was going to be. If he didn't make the right choice, if he didn't get into the right place, if it wasn't the right thing, then that was it. He was going to have set himself off in the wrong direction and he was going to be all over the place. And I we had quite a lot of conversation about that thing that says the most important thing is just to start. Yeah. Because how can you possibly know at 18 when you leave school or at 21 or 22 when you leave university? You can never know, no matter how good the careers department of your educational institution is, you can never know all the opportunities. You can never know what things life is going to offer you. But you've got to be in it to win it. So get out there and get started. And then Make the most of the chances that come. Be curious. Take the opportunity. And then and if it doesn't work, if it turns out to have been a completely wrong choice, the world doesn't end. Just do something else. And, you know, that that fear that you're going to make a wrong and you're going to make a misstep. It's really, really understandable. But actually, you know, here was I fluffing my A-levels at 17 and here I am now at 51, you know, leading the largest government department it it is all things are possible in life just be open to those opportunities and gosh you're going to make mistakes that's fine learn from them and carry on thank you i mean all my guests on radio ombudsman are special but you are especially special (laughs) it's been an absolute delight to talk to you inspiring educational funny, northern-based, everything we would want in in an exchange. I'm grateful for what you're doing. Everyone will be grateful to have had the opportunity to listen to you. So, Angela, thank you. This is Rob Behrens signing off from Radio Ombudsman. Take care. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.